And we've been in this series called The Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said. Clearly, that's dealing with passages of Scripture that are hard passages to understand, to work through, some things that are confusing for us at times, or things just basically that, that, that smack us in the face or, or cut across our cultural views and our perspectives. And so we've been looking at a lot of different passages. And this morning, we're going to, as uh, Jeremy said, we're going to be looking at probably one of the most difficult topics, and that's the issue of divorce. You know, as, as you think about this topic and try to even look at a passage, uh, this topic kind of threads its way through multiple passages in the scriptures, and you can't just go to one place to find out all the answers. You know, and with the Bible, you just can't, you, you can't turn to M for marriage or D for divorce in the Bible or R for remarriage and find it. You have to weave together numbers of passages, and there's a variety of passages, and of course, there's a lot of different interpretations of those passages. Um, and because it's complicated, we are going to have this fireside chat this evening. This morning, we can only look at a few major points. This evening, we're going to be available to sit and talk together and to, and to go into more deeper questions that folks might have about this topic. But we're going to look at the two key passages right now in the Scriptures, even though there's multiple passages that influence this. The, the first passage, and this is the, where we find the verse that is kind of the things I wish Jesus had never said, um, uh, it tells a story about Pharisees coming up to Jesus, and we'll just, I'll just read this, and they were there to test him. They were there to ask him a hard question, to find out what is your opinion, but more than that, to see if we can trap you and catch you in saying something. And they, they asked him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You see, this was a big deal back in Jesus' day as well. And uh, there was the conservatives and there was the liberals, and they represented a lot of different viewpoints, and they wanted to know what Jesus said. So he answered, have you not read, which, by the way, that's an interesting phrase, Jesus is talking to Pharisees, the real Bible scholars of his day. And he just kind of says, have you guys read the Bible? (laughs) Um, And he said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what Jesus is doing is he's pointing them back to the Genesis story and the fact that God brought Adam and Eve together and that God established that union. That didn't satisfy the Pharisees, though. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And that's coming from Deuteronomy 24, literally hundreds and hundreds of years after Adam and Eve were brought together, after the flood, after all the issues. This is in Deuteronomy 24, and this is giving legal precedence because, as Jesus said, God knew people would be divorcing, and so he sets up a legal process to protect the parties involved, particularly the parties that are being um, left or abandoned. And so he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Again, that's giving the giving the, uh, the legal process by which that would happen. But from the beginning, it was not so. And then this is the verse that sticks out and is so difficult for us to deal with. As I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. 
Now, Jesus there is, is speaking to the Jews of his day. He was speaking to the church, people who knew their Bible and who were in the covenant community and who were responsible to do what God told them to do. Later on, as the gospel of Christ spread, it impacted not only the Jewish community, but the Gentile community. And people who came from a totally pagan background, suddenly some parties of those in in those marriages were getting married. And so you, you discovered for the first time mixed marriages. People who remained married, but some of them were Christians, became Christians, and others remained pagan, and you had mixed marriages. And so in Corinth, they were asking, what do we do about that? And so Paul wrote this, he said, to the married, and this is to the con- into the context of believers, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. And what he's saying there is this is, where, this is where God's already spoken through Jesus. He's referring them back to Matthew 19. And he says the Lord's already basically said this, that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and husbands should not divorce, a husband should not divorce his wife. And then he refers to the mixed couple, the mixed marriage. He says, but if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So we'll be looking more carefully at these and some other passages this morning, but those are the key passages. Let's just take a minute to pray together, and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would oversee us now as we seek to be faithful to your scriptures and sensitive to the realities of the things that we face in our culture and in our lives. I pray, Father in heaven, that you'd help us to understand one another and to understand your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together as we're thinking about these things would be acceptable in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of the people I love have been hurt by divorce. I hate divorce. I hate divorce because I've seen what it's done in the lives of some of my best friends, what it's done to their self-esteem, how they've had to deal with rejection, I've seen what it's done in the lives of their kids, tearing apart their sense of security. But most of all, I hate divorce for what it's done in my family. I hate divorce because of what it did to my sister and her children. While growing up, my sister and I were extremely close. She married a man who, to the outside world and to all of our understanding, was an upright example of godliness. I look to him and I look to their marriage as an example to myself. I can't get into all the reasons that ended their marriage now, but their separation created a significant emotional wedge between my sister and I. It wasn't healed until years later when I finally learned of the brokenness behind their divorce. I hate divorce because of how it's impacted my wife and my children. My wife, Janet, grew up in a home where her father and mother went through multiple divorces. Our stories affect us. In our 38 years of marriage, 
we've regularly been challenged with different aspects of her growing up in that context. Divorce has impacted me personally, painfully, very deeply. I hate divorce. I don't hate people who've been through divorce, but I hate divorce. In Malachi 2.16, the prophet's words can be translated, God hates divorce. But why does God hate divorce? The Bible says that God created men and women in his own image. Now, that image implies, as, as Jeremy was saying, many things. But one clear meaning is that God is a relational God. He exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they've interacted together and worked together and loved together forever. And being made in God's image, we need relationships. Not just any kind of relationships. We yearn for faithful, trusting, dependable relationships. Relationships where we're accepted for who we are without wearing masks or playing games. There are many ways God has designed to meet our desire for relationships. First of all, he wants to be in a personal relationship with us, and that's just mind-boggling, that the God of the universe wants to know us and be known by us. But God knew that that wasn't enough. When he created Adam, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll create a woman who can be his friend his partner, his intimate lover. And from their relationship, I'll create a family, a stable environment where children can grow up in love and security. And then as humankind multiplies, I'll provide webs of extended relationships for friendship, for work, for support and for protection. The Bible calls these relationships covenants. And as Jeremy was saying earlier, a covenant is a relationship contract based not on goods and services, but based on commitment, trust, and faithfulness. And as human beings made in God's image, God made us to need these covenant relationships for our health, stability, and growth. But today, our society has taken marriage And it's often seen there as a convenience. It's viewed as something socially constructed to meet my needs, to fulfill me, to take care of me. And when marriage doesn't do that, either because it's not meeting my needs or perhaps because someone comes along who seems like they're a better option, regardless of the reasons, when marriage is no longer convenient, then I can bail. And so we're told by sociologists and psychologists and cultural commentators that now it's normal to have two, three, four, or even more marriages in life. We're told that we are constantly changing, constantly developing. We aren't the same person in our 40s that we were in our 20s, nor in our 60s that we were in our 40s. Our lives and our circumstances change, so we may need a different partner who matches our developing concerns and interests. Of course, that partner may also need to change in the future because our needs, again, will change. 
marriage? Is it a covenant or a convenience? God made us in his image. We desperately desire covenant relationships. But when marriage is made into a convenience, we don't know who we can trust. We don't know what faithfulness is. We don't know if anyone's dependable. Judith Wallerstein was a psychologist who studied the long-term impact of divorce on families. One of the most telling aspects of her research is the difficulty children of divorce have to trust or to commit. Can't you see why? If they can't experience trust and faithfulness and dependability in their own home, how can they expect to receive it from somebody else? Now I know why it took so long for my wife to be willing to commit to me. Why, for the first 10 years of our marriage, she really wondered if my love would ever last. I hate divorce. And God says he hates divorce. He hates divorce because he sees how his creation, which he has made to be in covenant relationships, has become twisted in doubt and anger, resentment and rejection. But God hates divorce most of all because he himself has been through one. You see, in Ezekiel 16, the prophet declares that God initiated a covenant marriage with Israel. It says he took Israel as his bride. He loved her. He provided for her. He cared for her. And in response, Israel went running after other gods. She committed spiritual adultery. And she abandoned him. Finally, in Jeremiah chapter 3, the prophet says God had to write a divorce. He had to divorce Israel. God hates divorce because he's been through divorce. God doesn't hate divorced persons. He hates divorce. And let me say, you talk to someone who has been divorced, you'll never find a person who hates divorce more than those who have been through it. Divorced persons hate divorce. And those of us who've been impacted by divorce hate divorce. And God hates divorce. He's been through it. So the way God approaches divorce is different than the way it's approached in our society. In our society, if a marriage is viewed as a convenience, well, then divorce is simply a legal tool used to discard what I no longer want so that I can seek what I think I need. God doesn't view things that way. God views divorce as covenant-breaking, and the results are disastrous. In Matthew 19.9, we read, as well as in other passages, that Jesus says if you divorce your wife and marry somebody else, you commit adultery. And we hear that and we say, so what's the big deal? People are sleeping around all the time. In our culture, adultery is commonplace. We see it on TV shows. We hear jokes about it on sports talk radio. We laugh about it. So what's the problem with adultery? Well, today in the Middle East, if a man commits adultery, he may have to take on that woman as another wife. 
But if a woman commits adultery, she'll probably be divorced. She'll become socially ostracized. She may even be killed. In the Old Testament, and even in Jesus' time, adultery was a capital offense. Lesser penalties could be chosen, but death was always an option. Look at John chapter 8, and the woman caught in adultery. So when Jesus said, if you divorce your wife and marry somebody else, you commit adultery, he was saying that this is extremely serious, both socially and before God. Remember the seventh commandment. God says, you shall not commit adultery. God takes covenant relationships very seriously. The New Testament outlines two situations where divorce, while not required, is valid. Both situations are based on the idea that something has happened which has severely broken the marriage covenant. The first situation is found in Matthew 19.9, where Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus says divorce can happen on the grounds of sexual immorality. What he means is that a divorce can be valid in God's eyes if it is based upon a partner's ongoing sexually deviant behavior. The second situation where divorce is permitted, as we saw earlier, is found when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and as we've already seen, that Paul addresses both Christian marriages and mixed marriages. When two Christians are married to each other, He says, listen, the Lord has already spoken to this. You shouldn't get divorced. And the church knew this, and they also knew about the exception for sexual immorality in Matthew 19.9. But what happens when two non-Christians are married, and then one of them becomes a Christian? Paul says, if your unbelieving spouse wants to stay married to you, then then don't divorce. However, if your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, wants to divorce, Let him or her leave. You are no longer enslaved to the marriage. So the scriptures teach two valid reasons for divorce, and they're both based on the marriage covenant having been shattered. The first is sexually deviant behavior, and the second is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Now, there's all kinds of questions that can come up about particular situations, which unfortunately we can't address now. Again, that's why we're having our fireside chat this evening. But there are two things we need to make sure we understand. First, God empathizes with the pain that brings about any divorce. Remember that God himself went through a divorce. He knows what divorced persons experience. Second, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. God can forgive people who have sought a divorce even when their reasons were not biblical. However, these people need to honestly face themselves and the consequences of what they've done. But John says, the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so we've seen that we're made in God's image, that we yearn for stable, faithful, trustworthy relationships. We've seen that God hates divorce just like everyone else who's been impacted by it. He doesn't hate people who've been through divorce, but he hates divorce. We've also seen that God views divorce as covenant-breaking, 
which is quite different from the mood of our culture that sees it as a convenience. But what about remarriage? What does God say about that? <laughs> this subject has been hotly debated for generations, and many sometimes complicated answers have been suggested. Another reason we're having the fireside chat this evening is so that we can look at some of these questions more deeply. But let me say three comments that can at least frame the discussion about remarriage. First, if someone had biblical grounds for divorce, then they have biblical grounds for remarriage. If they have biblical grounds for divorce, they have biblical grounds for remarriage. Secondly, the right to remarry doesn't necessarily mean it's wise to remarry. Divorced persons need to ask how they've managed the baggage that they've taken out of their previous marriage so they don't end up taking that baggage into their new relationship. And there are many wrong reasons to remarry, such as escaping from singleness or primarily seeking financial security or finding sexual relief, just to name a few. Third, if persons didn't have biblical grounds for divorce, they need to get help and support to evaluate their situation. And BP and I and the elders of the church here are ready and prepared and desire to talk to folks in the situation if they need that kind of support to evaluate it. This could include working on forgiveness, sincerely examining reconciliation, and discussing lifestyle choices that they've made since their divorce. Let me close by simply saying this. I hate divorce. I hate divorce because of the impact it's had on me, on my marriage, on my kids, my family, and my friends. At the same time, for over 15 years, God called me to spend much of my time working with separated and divorced people. And over those years, again and again, I heard one message. Let me share it with you in the words of my friend Diane. She said this, I hate divorce. I hate what it's done to me. I hate what it's done to my children and my family. But God has used my divorce to show me himself. He used my divorce to show me the value of faithful, long-time, long-life relationships. I've learned what it means to be forgiven and to forgive. And this is key. I never want to go through that again but I would not give up what I've learned through my divorce for anything. All of us in this room have been touched in one way or another by divorce. We need to remember that the forgiveness of God is real. That is the starting place for recovery. We need to remember that we are made for covenant relationships, and the first place we need to go for a covenant relationship is to God himself. We need to remember that marriage is a covenant, not a convenience. And we need to remember that as a church, we're called to be a community where people can find trustworthy, faithful relationships. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we... We pray for our community. We pray for our church. We pray for our city, Rome. We pray for our state and our nation. For the whole mood regarding 
marriage and divorce has changed radically in the last 40 years. Not that things were necessarily better 40, over 40 years ago, Lord, but things definitely are more out in the open and available. We pray, Father in heaven, that you would give us as a congregation deep compassion, remembering that you yourself know what it's like to be rejected and abandoned by your bride. We pray, Father in heaven, that you would give us faithfulness to the scriptures and a desire to understand one another and to care for one another in a way which reflects the love of Christ, who gave up his life for us, that we might have life. Father, most of all, I pray that you would help us to seek what it means to know you and to find in you the place where we can begin to discover faithful, trustworthy relationship. And Lord, even though we stumble and fall, just like Jeremy said in the beginning, and we confess, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to seek what it means to be faithful to one another, even as you are faithful to us. Help us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, that's not just a song, that's a confession. The longer you talk to Christians who've been hanging in there for years and decades, the more you discover that that is a fact that they lean on hard. Because of his great love, we are not overcome. Now, friends, may the love, that love that will not be overcome, the love of God our Father, and and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be upon you and abide upon you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.